Hey, I know you're probably driving or running or cleaning the house or doing something else when you're listening to this, but look, if you're a B2B marketer and you need to start generating revenue from your marketing, then you have to check out our 12-week program, the B2B Incubator. It's built for small, in-house B2B marketing teams with limited time and budget. We give you the strategy, the templates, and the tools to start driving revenue, not just leads. So if you're ready to act on all the advice Kevin and I give you, next time you take that first sip of coffee in the morning, make sure you head to the B2B Incubator and apply now. There's only 10 spots available per cohort with our next one launching at the end of May, 2024. Remember, the B2B Incubator, apply now so you don't miss out. We've had B2B marketing managers, CMOs, marketers in demand generals, content leads, and more all go through this program and they're currently executing the demand strategies that they've created. Some are now even contributing as much as 80% of the pipeline to their business after working through it. Make sure you check out the b2bincubator.com and apply now to start driving more demand and more revenue for your brand. Okay, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the B2B Playbook Podcast. Each week we demystify digital marketing and help B2B businesses grow online. We're your hosts, Kevin and George, a couple of digital marketing professionals. We've waded through the noise and made the mistakes so you don't have to. We'll cover the right plan to get your amazing business growing online, along with tips and tricks from our upcoming playbook, as well as insights from successful people in the industry. If you're in a B2B business and would like to see your marketing work for you, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe to get the latest from the B2B playbook first. Remember, with the right plan, anyone can grow their business online. Welcome back to the B2B playbook podcast. Kevin, a big week. We've had Facebook down. We've had Instagram down. Was that this week or was that last week? No, it was this week, early on in the week. Listeners, when you get to, when you get to this episode, it's probably already a few weeks or a month ago, but hot news this week at our end as we're recording. Yeah, it always prompts people, particularly Joe Polizzi from the Content Marketing Institute, to talk about, you know, how important it is to make sure that you build your castle uh, not on rented land, but on your own land. You know, because at any point in time, something can happen to these networks and it's not always in your control. But that actually, Kevin, is not why I brought it up. I have another reason for bringing this up. Do share. It just really reminded me of why I'm still on Facebook. I, I literally use I literally use Facebook as a way of making sure all the dumb stuff that I said 10, 15 years ago is gone. <laughs> now I like I hopefully I'm not the only person who's done this, but I have said some things that I regret in the past. And I think taken out of context of the time, it can look a little perhaps insensitive and you know, it's not really a reflection of my beliefs. I think just certain things are taken out of context. And speaking to some friends, I think that that is the case with a lot of people. Now, Facebook has a search function where you can just search like everything that you've ever written, right? There's Boolean terms you can put in and it should surface everything. So I went through and did that to go and just purge all of my Facebook content. (laughs) I thought I had done that, but Facebook also has Facebook memories. Do you get memories, Kevin, from Facebook? Uh, 
Yeah, I try and avoid them, but they oh, come okay. up. <laughs> well, Facebook is Facebook memories for me is literally just Facebook reminding me of dumb stuff that I've said. And what I've actually realized is for some reason, the memories and the stuff that I've said, Facebook doesn't surface in my Boolean searches, which is crazy. It's as if mm. they are withholding this stuff from me because they know that memories is keeping me coming back again and again and again. And there's actually no way of me finding everything that I've ever said all in one go and deleting it. I, I think I'm locked into just visiting Facebook each day, clicking on memories for the next probably 10 years. Well, George, I, I share your frustration there. I've been really trying to find a way to delete Facebook for the last year or two, but there's, there's so many things you need it for. There's still groups of friends on Messenger. You know, we've got, we've got some photos on there from a, a past life almost, but to get it all downloaded and then to delete Facebook is a, a task in itself. And then, you know, in our line of work, we, we kind of need an established Facebook account a lot of the times when we're running ads and things. I'm not sure if any of our listeners would know or have experience of this, but when you set up a new ad account on Facebook to run ads, nine times out of 10, it's going to get banned if you don't verify it properly, uh, if you don't go through the motions there. So having that existing personal account can be really beneficial in our line of work. Yeah, like you said, Facebook knows how to hook you back and keep you on the platform, even though you know you should delete it. <laughs> I guess that's my digital gripe of the week, Kev. I think we just covered it then. I'm, I, I'm, I'm so off it. I'm very, very off you, Facebook. I think that is the majority of people at the moment, but somehow they're clever enough to hold on, even though everyone wants out. <laughs> well, in a way, Kevin, this is a little bit related to what we're talking about today, isn't it? We're very frustrated with Facebook as a platform, and it does remind us of the importance of uh, having your own website and being able to control, I guess, what is on there. If I had those comments in the form of a post or a blog on my site, I could just go back and delete it and I'd have no dramas at all. That's it. Nice tie-in. Uh, I'll commend you for your efforts there to Thank you. This week's, Thank you. <laughs> this week's topic of discussion. We're talking about B2B websites and the role that that plays and how to build one that works. Now, George, we've done this a little backwards, haven't we? Last week, last two weeks, we've talked about how to build visibility online for a website, but we haven't actually talked about how to get that website set up in the first place. So we're doubling back here to talk about that. Well, I don't want to point any fingers, but that's your fault. You keep us, <laughs> like, you're our organizer. You keep us organized. I just largely turn up. So... <laughs> I should have seen this one coming, George. So <laughs> yeah. My apologies. To but again, you and I, the don't, listeners. I don't want to shift blame to anyone, but it's your fault. Well, I'll take it, George. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, again, I think it's a very timely piece, not just because of my own personal gripes with Facebook, Kev, but I hate to harp on about it, but the last 18 months has shown a real shift for B2B. And all of a sudden, those trade shows aren't, well, weren't happening. They're not as regular. They probably won't be as regular moving forward. And they're going to have an, in a probably a bit of a different way. Deals were done over handshakes beforehand, or at least that was a big part of uh, relationship building, which then turned into paying clients. And now the landscape is really different. 
Yeah, it really is. I'll segue here really quickly. I mean, this is talking generally about businesses selling things in general, whether that's B2B or B2C. But this week, we were looking at some stats that came out of a Shopify event, actually. And one of the insights they grabbed off Google was that 90% of customers now in Australia, just Australia alone, expect that companies, whether they're B2B, B2C, are selling products and services online and offline. So, you know, before that expectation wasn't there for that online service and it is now so big. And this is another one that Google's probably leaning into to to upsell its own services. But 70% of user journeys towards purchase, towards making a business decision now involves some Google touchpoint. So you can imagine even traditional services that are offline, um, traditional b2b relationships that are offline they're now touching google so you have to be online you have to have that website because people are looking for you as part of their user journey into uh, dealing with your business and building a relationship i think just reflecting that anecdotally uh, i've seen that as well we set up google ads accounts for companies who are who are in b2b and they're in traditionally slower moving industries and the adwords that we've been, or the keywords that we've been bidding on over the last two years, we've just seen the volume of those grow exponentially over the last 18 months in particular. So slower moving industries, even ones in like manufacturing, we've seen a huge shift in uh, the number of searches of people coming through before looking to form that relationship with a business. Yeah, I mean... That also raises its own problems that we talked about before, where there's a rising level of competition. You know, when when you need to make so many touch points online, what's that cost look like to your business? Maybe it's more, but if you start thinking about it as some of your marketing budget shifting from offline to online, that's really what you should be looking at, your overall marketing budget. You shouldn't really be separating out your offline and online budgets. Uh, when you talked about marketing, because it is one budget and you need to go after the channels that work irrespective of whether they're offline or online. So, you know, not to dig too deep into that a wormhole, uh, we can go today's end about the rising costs and competition on platforms like Google search, but, you know, it's a necessary evil at this point in time. Oh, that's an interesting point, Kev. I read there was some research coming out of Gartner that's predicting within a couple of years, a lot of B2B companies are going to be actually be blending sales, marketing and partnership functions mm. all into one department, which I actually think makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's a great point, George. I think uh, working working in-house, we're seeing that at the call face, that that is some of the issues that we're having internally. Well, not, I wouldn't say issues. I think it's opportunities. And for our clients as well at Metigy, you know, when, when we talk to them, they're much smaller businesses and it, it's all wrapped up into one. Uh, these businesses don't see any distinction between marketing, sales, and, you know, even customer service. Like it's just all one function for them. It's about servicing the customer uh, and whatever goes into that is part of what they call marketing. Yeah, your website is now the digital home for your business and you've got to treat it as such. You've got to go out there and be bloody hospitable. I want to see some ethnic hospitality (laughs) (laughs) from our listeners. When they come to your site, you better make them feel very special, very at home. I want you to run after them. (laughs) I want you to be as helpful as possible. And that's what people are coming to expect today. They're expecting B2C experiences from B2B companies. 
Yeah, that's it. That's a, a very important point. I think another really good way that we've put it in the past uh, when we chat to chat amongst ourselves is when, when people are looking for you online these days, that image that they get, that sense of who you are, that they get online, it needs to match that professional profile you're building for yourself and that reputation that you have offline. Particularly important for your B2B businesses, uh, professionals. If people are looking for you online and they don't see the same stuff that you're talking about offline, they start to question that a little bit and, and they say, hey, if you're, if you're really that person, if you're really that professional and well-known and well-regarded in that space, why aren't you online? Why aren't people saying the same sort of stuff online about you? Or at least why aren't you saying that about yourself online? Yeah, definitely people are expecting now that B2B companies are presenting themselves in that same way online so that they can find more information about you without you being there or your sales team being there having a conversation with them. All right, folks, quick breather here. In my time in B2B marketing, generally I've come to realize that there are just certain tools that can be an absolute game changer. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about Leadfeeder. Uh, it's a tool that helps you cut through the data and turn those website visitors into solid leads and opportunities for your business. Leadfeeder shows you which companies are checking out your site, tracking their behavior, and it integrates all of this with your CRM. And the result is it's basically like a secret weapon for targeted lead engagement, and it really makes it easier for your team to convert website traffic into sales. Head to leadfeeder.com, give it a free demo, and you'll also get a free extended premium trial when you let the rep know that you found out about Leadfeeder through the B2B Playbook podcast. That's leadfeeder.com. Okay, check it out. Back to the show. I think that's particularly important when it's so easy for your dream customer to just in two clicks search your competitor. And if they're doing yep. it and they're showing uh, online everything they can do, everything they know and all the accolades they've received and you haven't, well, you, they're probably just going to go with your competitor because they look more suited. I'm going to put that into data terms. Another insight from the the Shopify webinar I was at earlier this week. Sorry to harp on about this one, listeners, but really great points coming out of that. Another insight they had from Google was that one in three users will actually go with a competitor if they just showed up online earlier than you. So that's just how powerful online is now. Uh, you have to be present because you could be losing a third of your business just because you're not showing up where your competitors are. Gee, online is just the wild west, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Everyone's making a grab for the attention. <laughs> We're helping our listeners become cowboys and cowgirls. Yeah, fastest hands in the digital west. <laughs> We've already touched on the importance of owning versus renting someone else's platform. Do you think we need to go through it again? Probably not. Like a quick recap of that concept is uh, you need to establish a channel or a space online for yourself where people are coming directly. Uh, I think a, this, <laughs> there was an interesting uh, example you gave a couple of weeks back on, on uh, LinkedIn, George, if you want to delve into that one. Oh, is this the OnlyFans one? Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, just a quick side note. Anytime I mention anything to do with sex, Kevin, just the re <laughs> reach explodes. It's it's wild. And, sex still uh, sells. Sex sells. Sex sells. <laughs> no, this is from um, about a month ago when OnlyFans announced that they were going to change their policy and basically weren't allowing their creators on their site to post 
more explicit uh, nudity on the site, which is really what that site was built on. You know, is it really a gateway to porn, if not, <laughs> if not directly <laughs> selling porn itself? So all of these creators who actually built up some amazing levels of income on the site were all of a sudden left in the lurch because they were going to lose their audience. They're going to lose direct contact with their audience. And I joke that, you know, they should have saved their best content for their own website and pushed people to subscribe to their own site and just use uh, OnlyFans as sort of like a, a lead funnel to get them there initially. No, that's a that's a great example. I think whatever your views about the pornography industry, I think it's commonly held that OnlyFans probably did good in that industry because a lot of people were being exploited in that space um, on traditional sites. But it was a very good illustration that anything like that, any sort of platform is just another, uh, another channel for brands to build following, but you have to quickly shift that following to your own spaces online. Yeah, and it's not just worrying about the worst case scenario where the platform completely turns the lights off on you. Mm. Another stat that I actually came across was about LinkedIn, which showed that it's twice as difficult now to get the same organic reach that you could get last year on LinkedIn based on how much engagement, how much you post at the moment. Yeah, well, so so that means, you know, to reach the same amount of people now, you're looking at doing double the amount of work and pushing out content, double the amount of engagement with posts in your space, double the amount of work getting back to people who have commented and engaged with you. That's crazy. It's exactly right. And it's why you need to keep shifting that audience to your website. One more thing about these platforms is the algorithm doesn't surface posts chronologically. And the posts that tend to do really well are ones that might be, I don't know, maybe a little bit more funny or have a little bit more fluff to them. It's not often that you see a really useful post go viral. Like you're not going to see someone's webinar promotion post go viral on LinkedIn, for example. So what can happen is if you have a post that's quite funny and engaging and has some kind of virality or at least gets a lot of engagement and you get a lot of eyeballs that way, that's great but you're not actually pushing them to anything useful. And then your next post might be about a webinar that you have coming up. You're not going to get the same reach that your other post had. And there's no guarantee that the algorithm is going to surface that in the same way. Whereas if you had focused your energy instead on always driving people back to your website, well, you can actually control what people do and don't see. If you drive people back to your website, you could have your webinar like smack bang in the middle of your landing page and you can show them the information that you want so you have so much more control yeah it's a, it's important to see those sort of posts on the the channels that you don't own as a driver or drivers to your website to your space that that you control so that you know when when the channels change it's just a change of channel it's not really about changing where you post the actions you really want the the viewers to take because that's all going to live in your own space there's also really quality SEO benefits too of uh, hosting your own content on your own site. Yep. Uh, a lot of that content tends to get drowned out when it's being ranked on somebody else's site because, you know, tomorrow they'll have 10 more posts from 10 other people who are just as interesting that day. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, do you think we've convinced people that they need to invest in their site and they need to primarily drive traffic to their site? 
Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, we've, we've got a good mix of data points there as well as examples. The point listeners to take away from that first section is really that you need to build your own space and building your own space online generally means having a website that works where you can hold their attention and post the content that you want people to see. Wonderfully summarized. Let's move now to what the purpose of your B2B website is. People need to have this in mind, uh, whether they have a site already or are just looking at building one. You really need to think about, well, what's the purpose of our site? We said it's your digital home. We've spoken about how it really should show off your and your company's expertise. I think what else is really important is that it shows off your value proposition. What's your unique value proposition that you offer in the market? And then after that, why should people trust you? What signals do you have on your page? What experience do you have to show that people who come to your site, potential customers, should trust you? Yeah, that all, that's all pretty logical, George. I think one point we then want to, we take that concept a step further and say, okay, that's what you need to do, but how do you, how do you actually go about doing that? And it's about creating content, as we always said, that makes your dream customer's life easier. That's right. It's, it's about being helpful, isn't it? About creating helpful mm-hmm. content. It's that... <laughs> Have that ethnic hospitality on your website. Be as helpful as possible. Make sure they want to come back again and again and again. We're going to sound like uh, we're going to be known as the Be Helpful Guys rather than the Playbook Podcast. (laughs) You know, it's so true, though. I mean, my mom, again, for the listeners who haven't worked it out by now, my background is Greek. My mom is an incredible cook. She's an amazing host. And whenever I'd have kids over from school, like they want to come back again and again. And I'm beginning to realize now it probably wasn't because of me or my personality or them liking me. <laughs> I think they just loved like the amazing food and, and, and things my mum put on. Well, having been hosted at your house before, George, pre-lockdown, of course, I, I can attest to the level of hospitality and the cooking expertise that your mum has. The final two things that your B2B site should really cover are making sure that you speak to your dream customer and that you get them to build familiarity with your brand. And then finally, one that we've spoken about a bit before, but I want to dig into deeper here, which is about building your mailing list. So that's really the four purposes that your B2B site should should exist to serve. And I think we should probably dig into each of those a bit more, starting with the first which is showing off your company's expertise, value proposition, and building trust. Yeah, George, we've already spoken a little bit about this one. It's that piece around communicating your offline expertise online and having that match between your offline persona and a professional profile online. Uh, Particularly important, as George said, in the post-COVID world, uh, customers do judge a business purely on your online presence, um, if not as part of how they interacted with you offline. And it's very easy these days for searchers to find and review your competitors in that same space when they do a search for the the same sort of stuff that you're providing, even, even when they're really searching for your brand name. So it's important to show that expertise and that unique value proposition, as George said, against your competitors. So some of the things that show expertise are things like you know, social proof, testimonials, reviews, industry body awards that you've won. These are all things that help educate your audience on why you are an expert in your field. You know which testimonials I'm an absolute sucker for, Kevin? Mm. This company called The Influencer Project, and they help people get more business by helping them use LinkedIn 
as like a, a lead gen platform. Their testimonials are basically text messages between this guy who helps them and his clients. And he screenshots them when they're like all excited and getting results. And then he has like a page full of just screenshots of his text messages with these clients. And for some reason, I'm just such a sucker for that. For, <laughs> for me, I'm like, wow, this looks unbelievable. <laughs> That's pretty clever. It, yeah, it's it, it's pretty great. But yeah, just one of many ways that you can use social proof to get your prospective dream customer excited about you, your product, and what you can do for them. Beyond that, you can also look at educating your audience. And when we're talking a bit about being helpful and creating content that's helpful for them, that's what we mean when it comes to educating your audience. So make it the go-to hub for something that is relevant to them in their business that's going to make their life, their career easier. Yeah, nice one. What about that value proposition piece, George? I think there's some good examples here as well of how people can really show that value proposition of their business on their website. Yeah, I've seen some really good examples of people demonstrating their value proposition in just a clear table. One company I've come across that does it is a copywriter, so you'd expect them to be pretty good, and they're called Savvy Copy. <laughs> and uh, on their site, they have in a table format what it looks like if you use their service before and after. So you can directly go through and look at the difference in what your life looks like before and after using their services. Yeah, nice one. So going like pain points to solutions and what it looks like afterwards. Actually, this kind of reminds me of when we were talking about those pain and pleasure statements a couple of episodes ago, where we're really establishing the pain points of dream customers and within the avatar. And you can actually, the idea is here, you really just resurface that in its table format on your website so that people are really clear about, hey, here's the pain points I might be having I can resonate with. And here's how I'm going to move out of that pain point and how this business, according to their website, is going to help me get there. Yeah, that's spot on. That's why I really love those templates that we've been sharing and those exercises because you can just use it for so many things in your business. You can literally just pull that out and that's your table right there. Good point, Kev. Yeah, that's the purpose there. All right. Uh, I think the next one here is building trust. Uh, I think naturally looking at the stuff that you're, you're putting on your website to help build expertise, standing and value proposition points. Trust almost comes hand in hand, but there's some other things that you can do to push that um, trust point a bit further, isn't there? Yeah, you can try and humanize your business a bit more. There's people working in your company. They're going to be dealing with the customer. I mean, it's very likely they're going to be speaking to the customer if it's B2B. So show pictures of your employees, show pictures of your sales staff, have a phone number readily available so they know that there's someone to talk to on your website, you know, have it in the top right, make it really big and accessible. Make sure that you have case studies readily available so people can see that one you've dealt with other clients that are similar to them and they've got the result that they're after beforehand yeah it's much easier to have a good relationship you know with a human at the other end rather than a blank website with a logo on it isn't it that's true it just makes it a lot less intimidating to to contact someone once you put a name to a face i mean how much better do we feel i mean that's why we have that saying it's great to put a face to a name finally because we as humans feel better when we have that that's it. And we all need a bit of that uh, after three, four months in lockdown, not seeing faces other than in screens or not even that if we're ex just exchanging emails. Well, you know, I in particular am looking forward to the, the human contact, Kevin. <laughs> I'm sure you are, George. The second purpose of your B2B site that I want to move on to is creating content that makes your dream customer's life better. 
Are there any sites, Kev, that you really love that you go to for regular updates or regular information, you know, a couple of times a week that would fit into this category? Who's making Kev's life better at the moment? <laughs> doesn't have to be B2B. doesn't have to be B2B. I just want to know who's making your life better at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a podcast that I listen to myself is The Tim Ferriss Show. I think it's a fairly popular one, but for those who don't know, um, just have a search uh, and it comes up pretty readily. And the stuff that he talks about on his website, whether it's products or concepts or books, um, I always found really helpful in terms of the stuff that we're doing. You know, we're, we're both hustler types, I guess, new age hustler types, aren't we, George? Uh, we're always trying to better ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so, yeah. <laughs> so I think that the content that he puts out really resonates with people like us. We're looking to improve how we do things, whether that's in a professional setting or in our personal lives. Probably another one that's more specific to our careers, working in performance marketing, things like Search Engine Land and Search Engine Journal, where they really talk a lot about the latest developments in online search marketing. Like that is very helpful. And I don't actually you know, go to the website itself. I actually find them through LinkedIn. It's again, another channel. Maybe they can build a better, <laughs> a stronger push towards their own platforms um, as we're talking about in this episode. But that's the sort of stuff that really resonates. Like I would read their article. I would go through their website once I'm on there to look at other pieces of information. And I'm even considering some of the sort of courses, webinars and things like that, because I, I know that they give me a lot of value out of the content that they produce because it really actually helps my day-to-day -day job, my day-to-day -day activities. How interesting. I used to visit their site like religiously for a couple mm. of years, Search Engine Journal, Search Engine Land. And then for some reason, I just kind of stopped. And because I never... I don't know, I just never thought to follow them on another platform and I've just never been targeted by them again. They just haven't brought me back. <laughs> they haven't brought me back to their site. Yeah, well, maybe if they're listening, they'll... Uh They'll pick up on some tips here. <laughs> <laughs> One that I've liked at the moment is I've started just playing around with a bit of LinkedIn automation tooling systems, which help you reach out and connect with people who I do genuinely want to connect with. But, you know, there's, there's so many. So sometimes it's nice to have something to help you do some outreach. And it's by a company called Dripify. That's the tools, dripify.io. In line with their tool, they've created awesome content, which includes different messages that you can use as part of your outreach to maximize the number of people who are going to connect with you or maximize the number of people who not just connect with you, but reply to you and to start a conversation with you. That's been like an awesome resource and it's definitely kept me coming back to them. And actually, you know what? That's how I came across their tool and started paying for it in the first place. Yeah, there you go. I think probably going back to that, you know, search engine journal example, I think what they did really well in the last maybe year or so, maybe why you haven't really gone back onto them, but I've sort of <laughs> gotten to, onto them a little bit more is that they're actually doing more interesting pieces of content. You know, there's like a, a real mix. They used to be all articles I remember a while back, and that's part of the reason why I didn't follow them either. It was hard to get through all that same type of content every time to find something I wanted. They've gotten like different streams of content now. They've got summary articles that come out where you can just read on a LinkedIn to get the top headlines and then you can dig deeper into particular articles if they interest you. So it's easy to sift through everything. Uh, they've also got things like webinars, infographics, things that just visualize 
and give you a different medium to consume the content that they're trying to get across. I think we talk about some examples of different types of content before that also establishes someone as, as an expert. So things like white papers, webinars, quizzes, case studies, they're all examples, as well as you know tools and education courses. Yeah, just mixing up that type of content is obviously a play that really helps here. It all sounds like a lot of work though, Kev. Have we got any shortcuts <laughs> for our listeners, like creating all of this content, you know, wide papers, quizzes, case studies? It sounds exhausting. What about you and your experience? Is there any ways to help do this a little bit faster or a little bit easier? Maybe some way to share share the workload? Yeah, actually, um, that's a great point. You know, like any one business won't have all that resource to do everything themselves. You can look to outsource to freelancers and things like that. You know, we've got great platforms like Upwork and Fiverr these days um, that can really help you just get somebody else who's an expert at doing that kind of stuff to knock it out for you uh, with a little bit of guidance from you. But another great avenue is actually looking at how you can collaborate with people who are in those neighbor, niche neighbor markets who aren't really your competitors, but work in the same space. So for example, my job at Metagy, we recently, and and (laughs) credit doesn't go to me, obviously, it goes to the rest of the team who look after partnerships and these sort of projects within the team. But uh, we had a collaboration with a company called Social Status. They basically uh, pull together a lot of the, the sort of news and insights from the social media marketing space. And we had a collab with them to put together a report on the top insights in that marketing space on social media in the last couple of quarters. And that was a great resource, a great sort of reporting or infographic that we can then push out to our audience and reach out to people with a helpful piece of content where we didn't have to do all that work ourselves. You know, we, we put together the document, helped put together that document, but a lot of the insights actually came from our partners. So there's different ways you can go about it, but leaning on those type of partnerships um, in terms of collaborations to build some of these resources is not one just like a very resource efficient way of doing things but two it's a great way to start building some of those relationships a lot of the times with the dream 100 that's it it comes back to your dream 100 again and leveraging them to help i guess leveraging each other to help each other out help each other grow you are genuinely creating unique insights and content when you blend information from two people within a niche or a submarket, and that's something that your competitors can't just easily copy either exactly it's a you know it's the the old saying that there's a you're looking for a win-win situation in that business interaction uh it's not a zero-sum game you have to look for those win-win situations or win-win-win situations when there's more parties involved as as is the case here with the ultimate users of that sort of report and piece of content definitely look for those opportunities to help i guess speed up your growth that's it. And all of that helps make your dream customer's life better. On to the next point now is making sure that you speak to your dream customer with words and language that they understand, and then making sure that that leads to building trust within your brand. Yeah, this is a bit more of a technical one, isn't it? Instead of looking at the form in which the content takes and the form that the website takes, you're looking at how that actually comes across in terms of the language you use. Yeah, and again, it's not it's not overly hard. If you went through and you filled out our dream customer avatar template that we spoke about, I think that was a couple of weeks ago again, Kev, mm. you should have a really good idea as to the, the sort of language that your dream customers use, the 
the sort of imagery that resonates with them, the pain points and problems that they have and the solutions that you provide that are going to solve that. So your industry is probably full of jargon and you've got to think, is my dream customer going to understand it? Will it make them feel included by using that jargon or is it going to make them feel confused? Sometimes by including that jargon, you can really, really make them feel at home in a strange way. And so Kev, you and I love a business that really targets a niche. And the more niche your business is, the more jargon you can include because they already have a pretty good understanding of what you do and what you offer. An example of that, which is probably sounds a little bit strange, but, you know, again, as I go lurking through Facebook for <laughs> for groups that will accept me and welcome me as one of, one of their own, um, I came across a Facebook group, which was teaching DJs how to grow their business online. And the cover photo for this Facebook group looked like a whole bunch of metal and wires to me. It just looked like junk. But apparently it was actually an elite piece of DJ kit that high-end DJs would know about. So this Facebook group, which is teaching people who are DJs how to grow their business online, if you came to that and you were like me and I'd look at that, I'm clearly not the right fit because I'm not a hardcore elite DJ. But the hardcore elite DJs see that and they go, these are my people. These are my people. This is where I belong. This is where I want to be. Interesting that that didn't really stop you from uh, trying to get <laughs> in. But, um, yeah, it is a good point that you do have to speak the language. You do have to look the part um, to attract the right audience. <laughs> Yeah, that is strange. I was there. I agree. <laughs> I agree with you. Some people go on in YouTube rabbit holes. I go down Facebook group rabbit holes. And anyway, they didn't yep, let me. So in. Uh, <laughs> if you run a Facebook group, listeners, and you happen to see a George Kudinaris come across uh, and request access, don't worry. There's, he's not harmful. He's just... It's, you know what? It's not even like I'm in there trying to promote our business, the DDB playbook, like nothing at all. I'm just interested in a lot of different things, Kevin. Fair enough. Fair enough. Who am I to doubt you, George? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as part of this, you, you can work that same thing into your own site. If you are in a real niche, then make your dream customers feel like they belong there, sometimes to the exclusion of others. You can also use a, a pretty cool technique called mirroring, which is where you try and reflect what your dream customers actually look like in your imagery. And so when you do that, it's scientifically proven that people tend to trust that more. That's a good one. I know you mentioned it before, but I definitely uh, remember thinking about the examples of when we have communication courses and they tell you to mirror the language, the body language, the, the jargon that people are using in that conversation. It helps them feel more secure in that interaction with you. So uh, I guess it's true uh, in the online space as well with your website. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Now on to our final point, our final purpose for your B2B site existing is to build your mailing list. Building your mailing list is essentially your way of inviting people back to your home anytime that you want. When we went, we were speaking about search engine land earlier, Kev, if they had got my email address at some point, that probably would have prompted me to come back to them again at some point. But I, it just never happened. That exchange never happened. I don't know why. And I just had forgotten about them like the last six months or so. You know, when, once you get that email, uh, that's why people have 
newsletters that go out that, that bring people back into the website when there is a piece of content that is of interest to them and they can showcase that in the email. And it's why there's so many pop-ups when you get onto sites asking for your email address. Uh, a lot of the times, this is what they're driving at. And we're not advocating for you to be annoying like that all the time. You don't need to send every user as soon as they land on the site a pop-up to do to you know put down their email address. But it is something that you should work in at the right times on your website so that you are collecting those emails to build a mailing list, which becomes a channel that you own and that you can use whenever you need. Remember, if all you're doing is offering valuable content and if you're only sending them genuinely helpful content, shouldn't be a problem for your dream customer that you are emailing them. And I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind. If you are getting unsubscribes a lot, that's a signal for you to maybe tailor your your mailing list, maybe splitting up or serving more helpful content, as George said, to that particular segment that you've built out. All right. I think that covers a lot of, would you call it theory? Theory of the the B2B side and what it why it should exist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very long-winded sort of a half an hour way of saying when you look at your website, here's the reasons why it's important and what it should really do. But yeah, I think I think listeners will get a lot of value out of some of the stuff that we've gone in and analyzed. I think to make it a little bit more helpful for our listeners, you know, we're always trying to provide templates so they can take what they've learned from this podcast, go away and actually create something useful for the business from it. We've spoken, or we haven't really spoken today, but we've written in articles before about how your website should follow a what, why, how structure. I don't really think we need to dig into that today, Kev, but I actually want to share with our listeners um, really a website template that uh, we feel follows all the principles that we've spoken about today. It details like a number of really important pages and is basically a template where you can take this website template, look at how this information should be structured and you can use it to update your own site or if you're working on a new site, you can use that as a good guide. So Kevin, can you please link that in the show notes for our lovely listeners? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You can find that in the show notes for sure. All right, George, before we, before we jump off today, I think one of the things that we'll probably get asked um, the most or people are very interested in finding out is how to build a website. Everyone has their own opinions. There's a lot of easy sort of platforms to use, but they're probably struggling to figure all that out. Maybe we can talk really quickly just on that point about how to build your website. Yeah, there's your, as with anything in the marketing world, there's your do-it-yourself options. So listeners might have heard of Wix, Squarespace. Squarespace were advertising a lot during the Olympics, I noticed, actually. And they're still pumping hard. Particularly they are pumping the, hard. On, on YouTube at the moment, yeah. Yeah, Squarespace are pumping very hard. And the biggest one would be WordPress. WordPress is enormous. We personally use WordPress and do things ourselves, but we would encourage our listeners to just get a professional to do it for you. You can get a professional to develop a site for you for a couple of K, and it's honestly worth not having the headache for a couple of K, in uh, in our opinion. Right, and if, if you're sticking to uh, our template and making sure that the things that we say in there is covered off by the website developer, that will save you a lot of time down the track as well and making sure that your website is what it needs to what it needs to be. 
I might just plug a site developer that I work with. I don't get any kickbacks from this, but they just do good work. It's it's very reasonably priced. Hit up Jimmy. <laughs> His company's called Digital Recipe. So contact Jimmy at digitalrecipe.com. And yeah, he can he can probably sort you out with the with the site if you need one. Yep, I'll link them in the show notes as well. Yeah, that that just about answers that question there of how you build up your website. As George said, you can do it yourself, but we would recommend looking into your options about getting someone to help you do that. Save your time so you can spend it on doing the things you're good at in your business. All right, Kevin. Now, the key takeaway from today is keep your dream customer in mind when you're building your site. It's made for them. I think it can be just be that simple. Yeah, perfect. That is really the crux of what we're talking about today. As usual, listeners, you can find everything we've discussed today in the links in the show notes. And we will chat to you again next week. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Kev. Chat to you then. A quick note before you go, listeners. You can find more great content and get in touch with us at theb2bplaybook.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter while you're there. We'll be back the same day and same time with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in to the B2B Playbook, the easier way to champion your business online.